you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I'll uh, start reading at, uh, in verse 39, but we'll really be focusing on the sermon uh, verses 46 through 56. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth had heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary <coughs> remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You may not know this about me. Uh, because I haven't been around here that long. But I am a sucker for a good musical. I <laughs> love them. Uh, and it's strange that I love them because I can't sing very well. And I can't dance very well. And I've never been in a musical. But man, I could listen to them all day. In uh, Spotify, the, the company that my wife and I use to listen to most of our music, at the end of the year, they let you know what music you listen to the most. Uh, show tunes was number four on our list. Uh, worship was number three. Uh, dance pop happened to be number one, and country was after that. So that's we share that. So I can blame any of those that you don't like uh, on her. <laughs> they were her fault. Uh, show tunes are probably both of us though. Uh, what I like about musicals, whenever I listen to them, isn't just the singing and the dancing. It's that it gives another avenue, another outlet for some sort of emotion within the story. The basic rule in musicals is that when a character feels too much to speak, they sing. When there's too many great things going on, they bust out into a song of joy. When they're at the depths of their feeling and sorrow and despair, they sing a ballad about the pain that they're feeling. In the story today, in our text today, we get Mary's song. Mary's song of praise. It's called the Magnificat in some of your Bibles, probably. Mary here is at her highest high within the story that we find her. So she exults. Her high emotion results in a high song of praise. She felt too much, so she sang. This is her highest high in the flow of the story today. And in her song, what we can learn, what we can glean from it today, is we can see three results of Christ's coming. Mary is singing a song about the coming of Christ, and within her song, she gives us three results, three therefores from the coming of Christ. First of all, God has acted for his people. It's the first result of Christ's coming, that God has acted for his people. In the coming of Christ, God has done something for his people. Look at the first three verses there, 46 to 48. 
And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's seen. Mary's giving praise to God, first of all, because he saw her. The God of the universe had a plan from the beginning of all of existence to redeem his people and to save them from their sins. And within that plan, God took notice of a young, lowly virgin in Nazareth. He decided that she would be the one who would carry the eternal son. God saw the lowly and humble estate of his servant. He sees. This isn't the first time that God is praised for seeing in Scripture. It's a recurring theme. Hagar, the, the maidservant of Abraham who was sent out into the desert, when God approaches her and speaks to her, he gives her a promise. She praises him because he is the God who sees. He saw her. He acted. It's the primary attribute of God for her in that story was that he is a God of seeing. He took notice. He looked after her. When the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, he heard their cries, and therefore he acted. He delivered them. It's a very striking passage at the beginning of Exodus that the people cried out in despair, and their God heard them. And then you get the rest of the story. It sets up his action. That he is, first of all, a God who sees. He notices. He looks. He pays attention. And he sees you. You, right now, are known and loved by the God of all the universe. The God of all creation. The God of all majesty. He who is infinitely holy and mighty sees you. He notices. Your boss may not notice. You can work your whole life and he may never care. But God does. Your husband may have stopped paying attention a long time ago. But God hasn't. Your children may not listen. But God does. He sees you. He notices. On its own, that would be a terrifying thought. That the holy God of the universe, who is perfectly holy, knows every single thing about you. You, the wretched sinner that you are. When you hear that God sees, it can be a comforting thing, but it's only a comforting thing because of who God is. That he is also loving and good. Because if all it was was that he sees, he notices, that would be something that would drive us to shame, to despair, that he sees the depths of your sin. But God acts. When he sees his people, he acts for their good. Look at the end of verse 48. He's looked on the humblest state of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The same God who sees and knows is the same one who loves and acts. Mary praises him for seeing, but once he has seen, he has done something which is going to cause her to be called blessed from every generation forward. He saw her in her humble estate, and he acted. He not only saw, he acted. When he did, what he did, his servant, Mary, was blessed both now and forever. When God acts, he acts for the good of his people. He acted here for the good of Mary. So she resulted 
and exalted in praise of him. That's why she's singing. That's why she's exulting in the Lord. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on, his, on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's praising him because of what he has done in and for her. When, he, when she understood what he had done, what he was doing, her response was a song of praise. She praised him with soul and spirit. She praised God with all that she had. It wasn't merely her voice with what she was obviously using in her song. It wasn't merely her hands or her feet with what she was continuing to follow God. It was with her soul and spirit. That's not two different things within the verses. It's two ways of saying the same thing in those verses. From the deepest parts of who Mary is, of who Mary was, she's responding in praise to God for being the God who sees and acts for the good of his people. She responds in song with soul and spirit, but song with this, which is also in magnification and rejoicing. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. With glad exuberance, she's not merely feeling in her soul, but she's rejoicing out of the overflow of that feeling. She feels too much, therefore she sings. She's magnifying the Lord, rejoicing in the God who saves, responding to the works of the Lord the only way that she knows how, through song. If you would have told me before I became your pastor here that I was going to spend the amount of time that I have up to this point uh, thinking about music, I would have been very, very surprised. But it's been a very high priority since I got here to think about the songs we sing. Both on a macro level of what is the song list that we sing, we only sing these songs, we don't sing these other songs, then also on the micro level, week to week, I think through the songs we sing, I try to match them with the text, I try to make sure that they make sense within the flow of the service. I try to make sure that we sing good songs, we have a good mix of old and new. I've spent a lot of time and effort in what we do, how we sing, and what we sing. Because I want us to not merely have songs that we sing before the sermon because somebody a long time ago said, nah, I guess let's do this. I want us to have songs we sing before the sermon because they're anthems that we sing. We proclaim the truth of God. We proclaim who he is and what he's done with glad exuberance, with souls which magnify the Lord, with spirits which rejoice in God our Savior. I didn't tell Cliff that, that I was going to be talking about this this morning, and yet he made my point for me. When we sing, let's sing from our toes, like we're in a musical. We feel too much, so we sing. That's what Mary did here. Her soul magnified the Lord, her spirit rejoiced in God, her Savior. So let's have anthems that we sing as loudly as we can, as boldly as we can, because it's true for us. When we sing, let's sing with all we've got. Let's sing songs that we can shout with glad rejoicing. Let's actually do it like that. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in Oh, with all 
resurrected like he is when he comes, on that day, you will not be able to sit. On that day, you will not be able to have a frown. Sing from your toes with everything that's within you. That's how we should sing our songs. Let's sing like he's come. Let's sing like God has acted on behalf of his people and for their good with all our spirit. Because God had, has acted and he has shown great mercy. That's the second result from our uh, song of Mary today in the text. God has shown great mercy to his people. Look at the next two verses. For he, is, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In the coming of Christ, God has also shown great mercy to his people. He is the mighty one who works greatly. He who is mighty has done great things for Mary. The reason it's so incredible that he sees the humble estate of his servant in verse 48 was that he is the one who's mighty. Yet he sees the one who's lowly. He comes even to the one who is lowly. He is chosen to save the one who is lowly. To have the one who is lowly bear his own <laughs> son in the world. Yet he is the one who is mighty and who works greatly. And what a work of the mighty one this is. Notice the tense here in what Mary is saying. That he who is mighty has done great things for her. She's making a connection to the God of Israel who's continually worked for his people. He's acted for his people. And she is claiming that same work that he has done in the past for his people in the Old Testament for herself. That those promises that he made to them, he is going to be faithful to in her. That in him keeping those promises, he is also keeping those promises for her and in her. He has done great things for her because he is the God who did those things back then. What he has done for his people in the past applies even to Mary. But she's also saying that he has done great things for her because she's so sure of the work of the Lord even now. That she can say what he is going to do in the child she is going to bear is for her. And he has already done it. It is so sure, it is so secured in the being of who he is that he was going to act, that he was going to do these things, that she can claim them even before the child is born, that his salvation is for her. She's claiming that since God has already ordained it, it might as well have already happened. These promises for Mary are in the already accomplished sense. It's as if they're in the past. Because she can claim them for herself because of the God who stands outside of time having already done it in his way. And he can as well. He who is mighty has done great things for you, even if you haven't seen them yet. Even if you haven't felt their effects yet. He who is mighty works on behalf of his humble servant. At the end of verse 49, she says, uh, for he was mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That raised a question in my mind this week that I could not get out of my head. Holy is his name. Who is Mary talking about when she says holy is his name? 
She was told by Gabriel in verse 35, which we covered last week, the angel, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then, in her song of praise, later in that same chapter, she says, Holy is his name. She is calling the child holy. She is fulfilling the promise which the angel gave to her in herself and in her own actions. And she's attributing that even to the baby that is still in her womb. Holy is the name of the Lord who she is going to bear. In her praise, in her song of praise to the Lord, the God who is her Savior. Who she is praising, she calls, holy is his name. She's talking about Jesus here. She's not merely saying some God the Father in the Old Testament without her having knowledge of God the Son in the New Testament. She is saying that the God the Son who she is bearing is God her Savior who has already acted on her behalf. She's talking about Jesus. She's praising the baby that's in her womb as the one who is mighty. As the one who has done great things for her. Holy is his name. Look, I don't think we have to have a line-by-line attribution of this one's talking about the Father, this one's talking about the Son, this one's talking about the Spirit. We don't have to do that. Because to praise the Father is to praise the Son, to praise the Son is to praise the Spirit, and vice versa. There's one God who exists in three persons. But don't miss that the work of the Lord she's praising here in these verses is the work that is accomplished by Christ. She's praising God for the gospel. She's rejoicing in the gospel. In her perfect son's life, death, and resurrection. She's already praising him for that. God has acted for his people and come down to their lowly estate in Christ, the son whom she would bear. This song is not merely praised for Gabriel's words being true or for her being miraculously pregnant, but it's for God to have mercy on his people through the work of the baby who's still in her womb. And that work is to show great mercy, which is everlasting. Look at verse 51, or 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The mercy of God in Christ, through Christ, is everlasting. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. <coughs> Mary's calling back specifically to Psalm 103.17 where it says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. So she's saying on a macro level, when we zoom out, that the mercy of the Lord looked the same to the people of Israel in the Old Testament as it does to her in the New. The people of God in the New. His mercy does not change over time or over the eons. But she's also saying on a micro level that the mercy of the Lord will not change for you. From one moment to the next, from one generation to the next, his mercy is steadfast, his love is secure, and it is new everywhere. She's praising God for having a steadfast love and mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy will not change for his people, even as individuals. No matter their sin, no matter their history, 
His mercy is for those who fear him. It's secure even in their death. Even as it's extended from one generation to the next, his mercy is not going to leave you if you are his. It is for you and it is the same from generation to generation. In the coming of Christ, God has shown great mercy to his people. But in the coming of Christ, God has also turned the world upside down. Let's look at the rest of our verses in our text this morning. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He has shown great mercy to his people. He has given them something to praise about by turning the world upside down in the coming of Christ. And he's done all this in his own strength. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. It's solely in his power that all this has occurred. Not his people's, not yours, not mine. It's all in his strength, by the power of his arm. It's in his own power that Christ has been sent. It's in his own power that the virgin is conceived. It's in his own power that his mercy is extended from generation to generation. It's in his own power that the world has been turned upside down in these verses. And he has done that with his arm. Arm. The arm of the Lord is a metaphor used in Scripture repeatedly to show the power of God in saving his people. The clearest example is in the Exodus. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. It says, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. So the strength which God is showing in sending Christ is likened to the strength that he showed in bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. That is the central act of deliverance, the central act of salvation in the Old Testament. And Mary is connecting what he is doing in the coming of the baby back to that act. That he has shown great mercy. He has uh, used his strength and his outstretched arm to do so. So she's saying just as he saved his people then, he is saving his people now. Finally. Fully. Ultimately. In the baby. In Christ. In the coming of the Son of God, God is saving his people with the ultimate climax of salvation. That's the connection she makes. That's why she says that he has done it with his arm. The strength of God is shown in the salvation of his people. Just as he turned the world upside down by saving millions of slaves in Exodus, he is doing the same thing now by saving a baby born of a virgin to save his people from their sin. He has shown the strength of his arm in sending his son to save and to save even you. And doing so turns the world upside down. He upends the proud. The end of verse 51. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The action of God in saving his people upends the proud. It scatters them. Because we who are proud have to come to grips with the truth that we even have to be saved. It doesn't matter what kind of power you have. It doesn't matter what kind of strength you have. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. 
You need the salvation that comes in Christ. And that salvation is a work that is done totally and wholly by the God of the universe without you having anything to do with it. So we who are proud, when we come to God, that turns everything upside down for us. It surprises us. It shocks us. It's a stumbling block for us. Because we have to acknowledge that our Savior was born in a tiny little stable in a tiny little nothing Bethlehem. That we need him to save even us. It upends the proud in the coming of Christ. It reverses the power of men, verse 52. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It reverses the power of men. He brings those who are mighty down from their thrones just as he upends the proud. We, who think we have so much power, are brought down by the coming of Christ. We think we can control what happens in the world around us. We think we can find our own security through the money in our account, through the gun on your hip. We think we can find our own kingdom by rising up the ranks in our job, by accumulating power to ourselves and our work and our family and our church, by influencing the people around us and gaining all that power for ourselves, we think that we can build our own kingdom. But God has brought down those who are mighty, those who have a real earthly kingdom. And he has deemed that the only way to exaltation, the only way to salvation, is to be one of humble estate. To come to Christ as Christ came to us. He's turned the world upside down. He reverses the satisfaction of men. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The action of God in sending Christ to earth has reversed the satisfaction of men. The hungry, they get filled with good things. The rich, they get sent away empty. The coming of Christ changes everything. If you have a life, apart from Christ, right now, in which you are rich, in which you are satisfied with what you already have, and you think you want for nothing, you think you have some sort of happiness or fulfillment outside of him, his coming, his advent, refutes that idea. If that were possible, he would not have to come. He would not have came. If that's how you feel, that's how you think, then you have been sent away empty. You who are rich and think that you want for nothing, Nothing is all you have. But for those who are hungry, those who recognize that this world does not have what it takes to satisfy, those who recognize that even the good of this world, and there is good, it's not ultimate. It's not the good. Those who this world would so easily forget, pass over, ignore, move on from. Those have been filled with good things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They will be filled. He's turned the world upside down. And the greatest, greatest example of this is in saving his people. He reverses the judgment that his people deserve, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring, forever. The greatest work of God in the coming of Christ 
which turns the world upside down, is to reverse the judgment of his people. He has helped his people Israel in accordance with his own promises. This is the great mercy he's shown. That his people who deserve death, his people who deserve nothing from the God they claim to worship and fail to do so, have their fortunes reversed in the coming of Christ. He has remembered his mercy to his people. He has helped Israel, his people, who have never been faithful to him, who are not worthy of this intervention, who are not special or in any way worthy of his mercy. These are the people he has helped. These are the people whose fortunes have been reversed. And he's done that through remembering his promises, by being consistent with who he is. Because he promised their ancestors, Abraham, in Genesis 17, verses 6 and 7, said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And in the coming of Christ, he fulfilled this promise. He gave them a king. He established his covenant with love and mercy on the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David. He has made them a nation and a people. He has been God to his people in the coming of Christ. He's shown mercy to Abraham and his offspring forever in the coming of Christ. God is consistently keeping his promises in Christ to you. Every promise for good, every promise for help, every promise for salvation, every promise for mercy, they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In the coming of the baby who we are celebrating this season, he has remembered and realized his promises in Christ. His people who deserve death have been given life. His servants who deserve poverty, he's given eternal riches. He's turned the world upside down by the birth of a baby who is yet a king. The birth of a man who is yet God. Christ has come. And because he has come, we know that God has acted for his people. We know that God has shown great mercy to his people. We know that he has turned the world upside down in the salvation of his people. And when we recognize these truths of the gospel, we have to respond. We have to do something with that information. That cannot be something that we simply shrug off in this season. Every December, we know he came, big deal. It is a big deal. It turned the world upside down. In the coming of Christ, your life must look completely different. We have to give our lives completely and totally to the God who has saved us. We have to stop trusting in our own strength, in our own righteousness. We have to place our faith, our hope, our trust in Christ, his strength, his righteousness, which is shown in his finished work. In living the perfect life you couldn't live, in dying the death you deserve to die on the cross, and in resurrecting after three days to give you the promise of new life eternal life with him. We have to respond to that. 
That's the ultimate response. But today, what we can do in this room, most immediately, just as Mary did, is that we can respond through singing. We can magnify the Lord. We can rejoice in God our Savior through song with all our soul, with all our spirit. We can magnify the Lord and rejoice in God our Savior. This, by the way, is why we started singing the entire song at the end of the service. The, the goal at the end of the service, when I transition from prayer into the final song, is not merely to look around for a few minutes and see if somebody's going to come forward. The goal of the song at the end is to respond to the God whose word we have just heard. We sing and respond in worship of him out of the truths that he has shown to us. We rejoice. We magnify. We praise. We repent. We confess. We proclaim. The altar is open, yes. If you need to pray, come pray. If you have questions, come find me. I'm right here. If you need prayer from me or from a fellow church member, go find them. Pray. But we're not looking around for a verse and a half until, well, I guess nobody's coming and now we're just going to go home. We're going to sing. We're going to praise. We're going to rejoice. And we can do so today. We can respond to what he has done for us and who he is today. So today, let's sing. Let's not sing looking at our watches. Let's not sing wishing I had stopped five minutes ago. Let's sing an anthem to the God who has come, the God who has shown great mercies, the God who has saved, the God who has turned the world upside down by giving him just a fraction of the praise he actually deserves. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for sending your son out of heaven and to earth as a baby for the salvation of his people to save us from our sins. You have shown great mercy to us. You've given us much to praise you for. And in saving us, you've turned the world upside down. You reversed our fortunes forever. Let us praise you today and every day, as we should, as we can. Let us magnify you and your finished work in every song we sing, every word we say, every act we do.